The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. I've heard it said many times, many times throughout my life, that one of the things that a poet should do is get down to memorizing an awful lot of poetry. I heard that in high school when I had to memorize uh, some Robert Frost poems and some soliloquies from uh, Julius Caesar, Friends, Romans, Countrymen, and all of that. And ever since then, I've heard it. I've heard it from the critic George Steiner, who said that although it was torture as a child to be to to have poetry forced down his throat and being made to memorize these things, um, he believes that is better than the enforced amnesia that is now going on in schools where such things don't happen anymore. And most recently I heard it from uh, the letters of uh, Ted Hughes where he talks about how important just having a storehouse of poetry in your own head, how important uh, that really is. And actually, I think uh, Harold Bloom also fits in there somewhere, Um, especially late uh, old age Harold Bloom, talking about how he's having trouble sleeping and the solace of those long nights is being able to recite Yeats, recite Hart Crane, recite Shakespeare, Uh, recite Wallace Stevens to himself in the dark. And I've always been attracted to that idea, but I never quite got around to it. Uh, But I have now, and I realize what a... um, There's that image of uh, of the Buddha with the sword. And as far as I'm aware, what that image means is that he is using the sword to, uh, to separate those parts of your life or experience that are permanent and those that are merely of passing interest. And for me, at least with uh, poetry, you really begin to discover what your actual favorite poems are when you come to the question of, are you willing to memorize this? Are you willing to have this in your head until the day you die? Um, So that if I've spent a great deal of this podcast selecting my favorite poems by Seamus Heaney or Robinson Jeffers or Ted Hughes or Louise Glick or uh, many others, the added layer now is memorization. Which of these would I actually want to commit to memory? And one of the first ones that came to mind after doing a few short poems by Yeats was the soliloquy from Hamlet, To Be or Not To Be. That seemed to be an obvious choice, and I wanted to see what it would be like to try to memorize it. I've been able to memorize it by now. It took about two or three weeks on and off, um, taking my daughter to the mall or to a park and uh, or just taking her out. And when she's found some other kids that she can run around with, I can uh, watch her and uh, recite Hamlet to myself. And that's basically how it happened. And I wanted to see what it was like to do that. And the first thing that struck me was that uh, the poem that I had previously memorized was one by William Wordsworth. And it was, it was a real bitch to memorize. It was tough. And I realized that to be or not to be, even though it's much longer than the Wordsworth poem, and in some senses, perhaps more complicated in its ideas, it was much, much easier to memorize. And I don't know if this 
if this is uh, if this explanation is accurate, but it struck me that uh, Wordsworth was he was not writing for the stage, obviously, and he really wasn't writing for performance either, at least not outside of perhaps his sister or his wife or uh, Coleridge, whenever Coleridge happened to stop by in the Lake District to visit him. And so it struck me that Shakespeare, of course, is writing for performance. He's writing for constant performance, and he's writing for actors who have to be able to memorize what he has written quickly, and to also and also actors who are performing completely other plays at the same time that they are performing his. So that was the first thing that struck me as being extremely interesting, how much easier it was to memorize something from Shakespeare that Shakespeare wrote in 1599 or 1600 or so compared to something that Wordsworth wrote around 1808. <clears throat> Before we get going, though, uh, and, and just talking about the soliloquy itself, uh, it's good to just uh, hear it. And all throughout this episode, I will be just pausing to play someone else, a professional actor, that is, um, reciting this and uh, from, uh, from their performance in the play, just so you can get a sense of how vastly different people can interpret these things. Um, I don't have uh, Olivier or anybody else doing it. I thought to do actors who have done it in the last 20 years. And just there you can see the, uh, the range that's going on here. But just to get a sense of it, here we are. This is uh, Act 3, Scene 1, is it, from Hamlet. Uh, again, written between 1599 and 1601, when Shakespeare was in his mid-30s. And this is what it says. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of disprized love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns the patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied over with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pith and moment, or great pitch and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry, and lose the name of action. So that is it. And why is it that that speech, and not really, of course, to be or not to be, is what really sticks in people's mind, but why has that speech uh, stuck with us for the last 300 and more years? What I think I'll do now, actually, is I will pause so you can hear a, a proper actor recite this speech, and then we'll continue talking about it. 
to be or not to be? That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die to sleep no more and by asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to does a consummation devoutly to be wished to die Sleep to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus, the native hue of resolution is sickly though with the pale cast of thought. And enterprises of great pitch and moment, with this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. So let's think here, uh, what makes this work? I wanted to read something from a book by Marjorie Garber called Shakespeare and All, and that might give a sense of things. One of the things she says is this, um, <clears throat> the to be or not to be soliloquy is almost entirely composed of questions conditionals, infinitives, and passive constructions, to be or not to be, to die, to sleep. But by the fifth act, after Hamlet's voyage to England, there are no more soliloquies from him. Hamlet now talks to others rather than to himself or to the audience, and his language is suddenly full of active verbs, verbs of doing. And earlier in her book, uh, Marjorie Garber says this about the speech, about the soliloquy. The diction of the soliloquy, the single string of relentless monosyllables, the repetition of the infinitive to be, draws a verbal picture of the anguish of thought. And this almost unbearable moment of full consciousness, too full consciousness, is what we think of as the condition and the tragedy of modernity. Actors have tried to find new ways to pronounce this speech, and in his film of Hamlet, Kenneth Branagh speaks it while looking in a mirror, a three-sided mirror, where the actor, seen in full length, beholds and displays many selves, many versions of himself, which is the real one. 
we might compare we might compare to be or not to be with a similar kind of construction, say, to do or not to do. This is the kind of quandary that afflicts Macbeth, as we'll see. It is given voice in a great speech in Act One of Macbeth, which says this, My thought, whose murder yet is but fantastical, shake so my single state of man that function is smothered in surmise, and nothing is but what is not. To do or not to do is also the problem that confuses Othello as he trembles on the brink of a dreadful deed. But although Hamlet likewise contemplates action, contemplates murder, contemplates revenge, it is being, not doing, that has made this character the mirror that subsequent writers and philosophers and critics have held up to human nature, being and remembering, because the essence of the human animal and the pain and joy of the human condition are in this play directly linked to memory, to being rather than doing. Remember me, cries uh, the ghost of Hamlet's father. And later, when Hamlet is in his mother's closet, do not forget, his mother says, and Hamlet says this, Remember thee, I, thou poor ghost, while memory holds a seat in this distracted globe. Remember thee, yea, from the table of my memory, I'll wipe away all trivial fond records, all saws of books, all forms, all pressures past, that youth and observation copied there, and thy commandment all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain. Now, that seems to say something, doesn't it, about why this has lasted. Uh, there is such a great deal about history, such a great deal about uh, just modern motivational speakers, a great deal about uh, the generals in our histories or the CEOs, or sometimes just the badgering parents who say things like, you must do these things, you must achieve these things when it seems to be that what is most attractive to us, uh, what is most similar to so many of us, who on a world historical scale probably don't achieve very much, what is attractive to us and what is a mirror to us and what speaks to us about this, uh, this rumination by Hamlet is the, it is the thought of someone who can't do what he needs to do, and his occupation is with thought, with inaction, with simply being. And actually, the, the, the irony that the idea of silence or thinking should be considered in action, that's part of Hamlet's anxiety, isn't it? That the people around him don't value thinking. They don't value sitting around uh, like he is doing uh, when he is away at college, thinking and studying. They think that uh, the only valuable thing is in doing. And that is actually a good way to continue here. I just have a, a sort of annotated version of the speech with some of my thoughts mixed in here. The first one it kind of keys into this. Right, on, right in the second line, uh, to be or not to be, that is the question. And of course, the, the, uh, the plot point here is that Hamlet's father is dead before the play opens. Uh, his mother, Gertrude, has remarried, uh, has remarried with Hamlet's uncle named Claudius. And Hamlet is informed of the fact by his father that Claudius murdered him uh, and uh, his father's ghosts would like some revenge, please, now, and go and do it. And so, uh, by the by, Act Three, Hamlet is unsure, as always, what it is he is supposed to be doing. And so, on line two, he says, "To be or not to be, that is the question: whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune." Right away, there, that gives us a clue. Um, 
he is not uh, suffering this. He is not just suffering the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in his mind. He's suffering those things in real life. But what does he say in the mind? All right away, this is more a problem of mind. As Marjorie Garber said, it is more a question of being and not about action. This is something that is in his head and uh, not uh, in his feet, you might say. Um, and that's interesting. Uh, a few lines down, it's interesting that uh, he says about uh, ending his own life that it is a consummation devoutly to be wished, devoutly usually being given to a religious sense. But for Hamlet here, that kind of devotion is given to uh, suicide. There are some words in the, in the, uh, in the speech that, that I wonder about, um, comparing what the audience in around 1600 or so would have made of them, was the word contumely. Uh, a strange word for the audience to hear, as strange as it is to us now. I should point listeners to a wonderful book by, let me get their names right, uh, by David Crystal and Ben Crystal. David Crystal, I believe, is a, a sort of historian of the English language, and his son Ben is an actor, and they uh, compiled a book called Shakespeare's Words, a glossary and language companion to the plays. And it really is a great book. And um, if you go looking for the odd word, or just the commonplace word, and you want to see how Shakespeare used it in his plays, they'll give you the definition, and then point you to three or four or five of the plays and how they are used. It's interesting that for the word contumely, the, uh, where Hamlet says, For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely. Only this passage in Hamlet is listed uh, for that word. It means scorn or insult. And I wonder if that was as rare a word in 1600 as it is in 2022. Um, sometimes, the, a in the next line, the pangs of disprized love. I believe in one of the bad quartos of Hamlet, that word is despised. But if we take it as just disprised in, uh, in David Crystal and Ben Crystal's book, uh, disprised is uh, defined as unvalued, held in contempt, or disparaged. And again, it only lists Hamlet as uh, using that word. Um, and this, this, these two lines here, this line and a half, I suppose, which is immediately after that, the pangs of disprized love, the laws delay the insolence of office. Who will deal with these things, right? Um, and then it says, the insolence of office and the spurns the patient merit of the unworthy takes. The spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's having grown up in Ohio or something. Um, uh, I, I could not make, I still can't make much sense of what that means. In the footnotes to the versions of the play that I have, the sense of it seems to be the insults or spurns that the patient or thinking person receives from unworthy persons, as if they're being pitied by people that you don't want to be pitied by. And perhaps that's what it means. But you, you wonder about Shakespeare's method, you might say, that he can write something that is as fluid and fluent in 1600 as it is now. For instance, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Uh, to be able to do that, and only a few lines down say something like, the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes. You wonder if that was as much of a mouthful then as it is now. In the very next line after that, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Quietus. Uh, while I was memorizing the poem, I said, uh, I, I was saying to myself, quietus. 
But uh, when I went to listen to the actors performing the, uh, the soliloquy, all of them said quietus. And I had to remember what little I've learned about how it is to uh, read old and middle and uh, going forward English, which is to uh, basically pronounce as many of the letters as possible, because that is what you did before those letters or those sounds dropped off. So it was quietus. And it's interesting that in Ben and David Crystal's book, uh, quietus is only listed one other time, and that is in the 126th sonnet, which I can't remember the dating of the sonnets, but maybe it was being written around the same time. And this is what it says in the 126th sonnet. It appears in the last few lines of it. She may detain, but not still keep her treasure. Her audit, though delayed, answered must be, and her quietus is to render thee. And immediately in the next line in the uh, soliloquy, um, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare botkin, when he might be able to silence his own life uh, with, uh, with a sharp knife, basically. And then it says, who would fardels bear? And in the crystal book, there are four instances of the word fardel, F-A-R-D-E-L, that is defined as a burden, a load, or a bundle. But all four instances are given from a late play of Shakespeare's called The Winter's Tale from around 1610. And again, I wonder, was that an odd word for not just the groundlings, but the educated people to hear in Shakespeare's time. Who would fardels bear? And let's see, was there another word? No, there is not. Okay. And, and I'm struck by something here uh, immediately after that. Uh, who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life? but that the dread of something after death is the thing that worries us. The, the idea being that uh, the only thing that's keeping any of us from getting that bare bodkin and putting an end to ourselves is the fear of what happens after death. And I'll mention something later about whether or not this speech belonged in Hamlet, whether it was written specifically for Hamlet or whether it was something that Shakespeare wrote and only inserted here later. Um, but in this case, it sounds like what we know of Hamlet. Um, it doesn't say uh, who would deal with all of these things, um, who, who would put up with life uh, simply because we don't know what happens after death. Uh, Hamlet doesn't say who would, of course I'm putting up with all these things because I love Ophelia. Uh, of course, I'm putting up with all these things because I love my mother and uh, I want her to see the error of her ways. Of course, I'm putting up with life because uh, I'm going to college in, in Wittenberg and I have friends there, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Um, he doesn't say any of that. Uh, that's not the thing that is keeping him from suicide, at least not in the soliloquy. The thing that is keeping him from suicide actually isn't anything that he values in life. It is a fear of something after death. And that is a remarkable thing to suddenly realize about a text, about a poem, about a speech that uh, I guess we suppose that we have known for years and years. Uh, Hamlet doesn't value anything in this life so much as he fears the mystery of whatever might be uh, after death. Let's see. Oh, yes, and, and in the bad quarto edition of this speech, which I will read from in a minute, um, of course, it's much different. It says, uh, but, the, but that the dread of something after death is changed to, but for a hope of something after death. And similarly, um, let's see. No, where no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have 
than fly to others that we know not of. In that bad quarto edition of Hamlet, that part goes, But for this, the joyful hope of this, who'd bear the scorns and flattery of the world, scorned by the rich, the rich cursed of the poor. And, uh, or a reason to not bear with the world at all. Um, that, that is another reason to not bear with the world at all. And the very last thing uh, that, I, that I made a note of here is uh, four lines from, from the bottom. It says, uh, Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. We're too afraid to, uh, to kill ourselves. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution, the thing that leads us to action, is sicklied over with the pale cast of thought so that the great ideas that we have turn awry and lose the name of action. It strikes me that the line is that the native hue of resolution, the thing that would inspire us, is sicklied over with the pale cast of thought, not a pale cast of thought, not a, not a, a cast of thought that is uh, in error. Um, it is the pale cast of thought, all thought, is uh, has a pale cast to it and I don't know we, we think so much these days about poetry being autobiographical right and it's incredible to think on the one hand either that uh, Shakespeare that's try and get this right on the one hand either that Shakespeare knew that he was a playwright, he knew that he was a poet, he knew that that was the thing that he could do well, but that he was still sort of angry that that is what he had to do, that he still felt left out of the action parts of life, the active parts of life. And so this soliloquy is in some sense him complaining about his place in the world. He hates merely being a person of thought and not of action, or of, if he is a person of action, it is the stage action, it is the play-acting action. Um, he is tired of that. Or um, he is simply, he, he is someone who revels in thought, he is someone who revels in metaphor and in thinking and the power of thought and the power of creativity. I mean, you would have to be to be able to write what he did over the amount of time that he did. You can imagine uh, just being seized with all of these lives inside of you and being able to write them down and have them perform the way he was able to do in his lifetime. You can imagine him not being apologetic or regretful or any of that at all. And in that case, this speech is even more remarkable because it doesn't reflect his point of view in any way. That, and, and Peter Ackroyd mentions that in his biography of Shakespeare somewhere, how, uh, how unimaginably, uh, how eerily, how hauntingly Shakespeare is able to inhabit almost any position on any question. It's as if he doesn't have a position himself. It's as if his own position uh, on this or that matter is completely irrelevant. He is taken up with the matter of the story at hand, and that is the only thing uh, that is important to him at the moment. And I think here we can take another break and listen to someone else uh, read this soliloquy. To be... or not to be? That is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die to 
to sleep. No more. And by asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die. To sleep. To sleep. Perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off? This mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietest make with the bare bodkin, who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life? but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. Thus, conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus, the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pitch and moment with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action so I mentioned something that was striking here uh, and the idea came to me from, where, where's the line? Um, let's see. There it is, near the bottom. Uh, but the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose bore no traveler returns. Well, of course, uh, only a few acts earlier, uh, a traveler does return from that place, namely Hamlet's, the ghost of Hamlet's father, to tell him what happened, to tell him that he was murdered. So that's the thing that leads one to believe that either Shakespeare was so caught up in uh, the writing of this speech that you can forgive him some, uh, some flubs here and there. But it's also, if you look at the other soliloquies that Hamlet does, in the play. Uh, this is the only one that really doesn't, um, if you read it apart from the play, and maybe that's one reason why the speech has the power that it does, because you can take it out of the play and you don't really need to know the plot of Hamlet to understand it. Well, look at the other soliloquies here. Uh, in Act 1, Scene 2, uh, the soliloquy that begins, Oh, that this two-sullied flesh would melt, um, it is completely tied to the plot of the play. Uh, he has just been uh, sort of uh, had a dressing down by his, his, uh, his uncle slash stepfather and his mother, 
and uh, and the the speech, the soliloquy that Hamlet gives after they dress him down, is about the haste of his mother's remarriage, uh, and talking explicitly about mourning over his father. And in the Kenneth Branagh movie version, I believe it is that he gets the dressing down in front of the crowd at court, and then they all leave and with all the pageantry, and he is left alone to say this speech. In Act 1, Scene 5, there's uh, another soliloquy that he gives, but it is right after speaking uh, himself to the ghost of his father, so it is in response to that. At the end of Act 2, um, he says things such as, uh, Now I am alone, oh what a rogue and peasant slave am I, Am I a coward who calls me a villain? Why, what, a mass, what an ass am I? This is most brave. This is the most brave thing I can do. I must, un, I must like a whore, unpack my heart with words. And it mentions uh, how he is going to have the players at court play the murder of his father to see what Claudius's reaction to it. So that is tied to the story. Uh, Act 3, Scene 3, Hamlet's soliloquy, is when he sees Claudius praying alone to himself. And so that is tied to the story. He realizes if he kills Claudius while he's praying, the guy will go straight to heaven. So let's not do that. And in Act 4, Scene 4, um, it's like the other ones. How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. My dull revenge, dull being the thing that uh, will not be revenge at all. All of these uh, are very explicitly tied to the play Hamlet, and they are tied to where they appear in Hamlet. And I just wanted to read something from uh, from Peter Ackroyd here. Where is he? In his wonderful book about Shakespeare, uh, he says this. Um, yes. Uh, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Peter Ackroyd says, uh, Shakespeare seems to have forgotten that Hamlet has already seen his father's ghost. The speech, to be or not to be, is probably an interpolation within the text. It may have been a speech that Shakespeare composed for an earlier version of Hamlet or for another play altogether. It may have been a speech that he jotted down in a table book for unspecified use later. It was, in any case, too good to abandon, and so he placed it in this version of Hamlet. I believe that it's assumed that... Uh, so this play was written about 1600 or so. That about, that about 10 years earlier, not long after Shakespeare began writing plays, that he wrote an earlier version that hasn't survived of Hamlet as... Uh, as revenge tragedies were the uh, were the thing of the day, so that's one possibility. He wrote it for that version of Hamlet, or as Ackroyd says, he wrote it for another play entirely, or it was just something that was going through his mind. I like that last one best. That this is this was a concern of Shakespeare's uh, throughout his life, and. It may have just been something that he ended up writing, and he had no idea where it would go. It was something special to him in that way. The picture of Shakespeare that we have uh, from Peter Ackroyd is someone who is immensely disciplined, um, who doesn't read all of Ovid, who doesn't read all of Plutarch's uh, or who doesn't read all of North's translation of Plutarch, or even all of the Bible, what he does is he goes looking for plots that he can use, and then he uses them and turns them to his own devices. That is a very proficient and almost industrial way of doing things, of always being uh, on the make, as it were. Whereas the idea of this soliloquy just sort of being something that he caught in the air that had no immediate practical application, you might say. He couldn't put it into Titus Andronicus. Uh, you, could, you can't imagine it being in 
Romeo and Juliet, say, and certainly not uh, Macbeth, the old joke being that um, if Macbeth were the prince in the play of Hamlet, uh, he would see uh, his father's ghost, his father would tell him what happened, and he would, uh, Macbeth would immediately go off and kill his uncle. Uh, the play would be over with in about 20 minutes. Um, it's hard to imagine where else this could have been, but at the same time, it's hard to see quite how it fits exactly with Hamlet. It's a wonderful thing to think about. Um, and that sort of leads me to another version of this speech. This is from the first quarto, or um, this is from the, the so-called bad quarto, a version of Hamlet that uh, appeared, a pirate edi edition that appeared in 1603. And just try to remember, I've read it once and I think we've heard it twice more. Just look at how strange this is, but also how familiar it is. Uh, this is how it sounded um, in this other version of Hamlet. To be or not to be, aye, there's the point. To die, to sleep, is that all? Aye, all. No, to sleep, to dream, I marry, there it goes. For in that dream of death, when we awake, and born before an everlasting judge, from whence no passenger ever returned, the undiscovered country at whose sight the happy smile and the accursed damned. But for this, the joyful hope of this, who'd bear the scorns and flattery of the world, scorned by the right rich, the rich cursed of the poor? the widow being oppressed, the orphan wronged, the taste of hunger or a tyrant's reign, and thousand more calamities besides, to grunt and sweat under this weary life, when that he may his full quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would this endure but for a hope of something after death, which puzzles the brain and doth confound the sense which makes us rather bear those ills, those evils we have, than fly to others that we know not of. Aye, that, oh, this conscience makes cowards of us all. Lady, in thy horizons be all my sins remembered. Now, what the hell, you might say. Um, on the one hand, that sounds like the speech that I've been talking about the whole night, uh, sort of garbled through a game of telephone. On the other hand, uh, I believe that the explanation for this bad quarto is that it came from one of the, uh, uh, from an actor who was playing one of the lesser parts in it. And, uh, and that is sort of proven or supposed because all of the, uh, all of the lines of this certain minor part in the play are given exactly as they should be. And so you assume that whoever uh, put cobbled this version together played that part. He knew his lines very well, but the rest of it he sort of relied on an imperfect memory. On the other hand, we have a different idea, and that is that, uh, well, maybe in one case this is an earlier draft of the speech, but also, it's the kind of thing that uh, poets and creative people don't quite like to think about these days, and that is that uh, art and the things that, that last, the things that have the greatest impact, in many ways live on in garbled or strange or edited forms that we might uh, not respect. That our idea now of a final text of a respected authorial intent of a final text wasn't something that existed 300 years ago. It's possible that Shakespeare had other versions of this and that depending on the audience or depending on the troupe or whoever it was, whatever the reason might be, maybe he went with this different version of the speech. And that's a remarkable thing that he would allow that to happen. And it's even more remarkable that so many of his plays can take that kind of surgery. 
you think of a 20-page, not even a 20-page, think of a five-page poem by uh, a respected poet today who spent maybe a year writing and uh, uh, conscientiously and painstakingly putting this thing together. And imagine taking five lines here out, one line here out, uh, this and that, and it would make no sense at all. Whereas Shakespeare, being Shakespeare, uh, because he is writing drama, because there are characters and a plot, it is possible to remove characters, remove plot lines, and to still have something coherent, to still have something extremely vital, something that uh, cannot be tamped down, cannot be turned off. The voltage is always still there. And actually, Marjorie Garber says something about this. I want to make sure I get it right. Um, say about this earlier version. Um, she says this. Undeniably, the poetry of the second passage, the version that we are familiar with, the poetry of the second passage is more reflective and more compelling. The sea of troubles, the ruminative to sleep perchance to dream, the undiscovered country from whose bourne no traveler returns, rather than, in the other version, at whose sight the happy smile and the accursed damned. Who could think of doing without these lines? They are among the cornerstones of our culture. And yet, and yet, she says, theatrically, these gorgeous philosophical digressions and rich metaphors slow down the action. And since Shakespeare was all about the action, isn't that interesting, the person who is writing uh, who is inactive in his plays is actually all about the action. Uh, that is another indication that maybe this speech comes from somewhere else. Um, she says the formal who would, replacing the more colloquial who'd, is a mark of the transition from spoken to written language. Late 20th century and 21st century directors influenced in part by developments in the modern theater, have noted the playability of the first quarto, 2,160 lines, the bad quarto, as contrasted with the much longer second quarto, 3,732 lines, and the first folio, which is about 3,500 lines. And experimental productions, based upon the first quarto alone, have been successful with audiences. Every production is an interpretation, and we are used to directors, both in theater and in films, rearranging scenes, shortening speeches, and conflating characters, or cutting them together, or cutting them all together. This is part of what directors do as a part of their craft, and this is what Shakespeare did as a writer. Uh, fidelity to the text, quote-unquote, fidelity to the text, is balanced with what works on the stage. So it should not come as a surprise or as a violation of essential verities that stage directors should have found the first quarto, in part because of its unfamiliarity, a source of theatrical invigoration. And that also might sound like heresy, that it's all just based on, um, that, that it's not simply an aesthetic matter here. Um, it's interesting that that, that's, that that should be of, be of any importance at all. Um, it isn't just about great poetry. Sometimes it's also about an unfamiliar experience of a familiar thing. Uh, we can never grasp, we can never plan, we can never pin down what it is that will enthuse us, as it were. And one of the other things I noticed was that, uh, and I suppose you will have noticed it as well, listening to me read what I have and then listening to professional actors reading it, is that the speech can be 
interpreted and spoken in so many different ways. It can be spoken quickly. It can be spoken slowly. It can be spoken in both registers. Um, and in terms of film, anyway, the film versions, the speech can be intercut with Hamlet speaking inside uh, or suddenly being outside and, or back and forth. And in that case, the lines become chopped up. In, in, in the manner of me, uh, in the matter of me memorizing the poem, I was able to get my bearings because I knew where the line endings were. But when you hear it, the speech performed, you don't hear where the line endings are. And in the case of uh, the speech truly being taken as a form of thought, as something that Hamlet is realizing in the moment where it goes that slow, uh, you almost wouldn't know that there were line endings at all. And so in that case, I wonder what the real use of the iambic pentameter line is at this point, other than either an aid to memory for the actors to be able to memorize blocks of text, or simply as a an organizational tool for Shakespeare to uh, not only write in the in the form that was expected of him if he wanted to be a successful playwright, but also just as a box that he could write in, um, a form of discipline that he could impose upon himself. It wasn't iambic pentameter that produced Shakespeare. It perhaps was iambic pentameter that fenced in what was already there and just needed a bit of, uh, he sort of gave him four walls uh, that he couldn't write out of. I wonder if that's partly something as well. And what I also learned was that uh, whenever I would read this out loud, whenever I would read the speech out loud, it was all resignation to me. Um, it never made sense to take the line, um, uh, to sleep perchance to dream, I there's the rub. It never made sense to me to imagine that I there's the rub uh, is actually something he suddenly realized. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I mean, I might happen to dream or live after death. The whole thing strikes me as being Hamlet already extremely tired and done with these things. And none of this surprises him. And he is telling himself and the audience something he already knows. So that it's a great surprise to see all the different ways that just that line is taken. Um, whether it does seem like a sudden realization or not. And I think probably my favorite line in the whole thing here is, um, he says, I, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. We have to think about that. And then the next line and a half says, there's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. The reason that life is a calamity, the reason that life is so long is because we have great respect, we have great awe, we have great fear for that thing after death that we just don't know what happens. Uh, there's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. And, and I think the last thing I'll mention, and this is the, along the lines of the speech being an interpolation or of having been written elsewhere, it just strikes me uh, in trying to write my own version of iambic pentameter for almost 10 years now and uh, being caught by that 10-syllable fence at the end of each line. As I was memorizing this, it struck me, um, and this might seem uh, a ridiculous thing to say, but it, it struck me that I could almost imagine how he did it. I can imagine the blocks of text that came easily and the bridges that seemed to 
not, I don't want to say not work as well, but that definitely seem to be bridges. The first uh, five lines, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them, that to me sounds like a gotcha moment. Um, that comes all at once. The You think of a mind that just at some point thinks in ten-syllable iambic pentameter bursts. Uh, the heartache and the thousand natural shocks. I can imagine that just... Uh, I think of what he would be Shakespeare would be doing today. He would be filling his coffee cup at Panera. The heartache and the thousand natural shocks. I got to fill this and go write this down. Write that line down. Um, to sleep perchance to dream, I there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. Um, I don't think it's just because those lines are so familiar that they seem so natural. Um, half of Shakespeare's gift seems to have been to be able to do these things as a one-off and uh, not quite need so much revision. Whereas a lot of the, a lot of, uh, the lines in the second half do seem harder to say and harder to think through. Um, they sound like something that he would have had to have worked on. Um, who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of disprised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office. I can imagine those things being juggled around or maybe being replaced or replacing other examples. And finally, that strange line in the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes. Um, and then you come to something, another thing that feels like a one-off, uh, where he finally hit on exactly what he meant to say, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose bore no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. Uh, that, again, sounds like the lightning strike, sounds like the thing that uh, comes nearly all at once and nearly whole, and he doesn't need to do very much with it at all. I think I remember hearing that uh, Leonard Cohen said that uh, it took him 15 years to write his song, Hallelujah, and I can imagine, with all of Shakespeare's many responsibilities, um, what it may have been like if this was a speech that was disconnected from any play at first, what it was like for him to just sort of go back to it now and again. Um, again, this is, this is complete, uh, uh, complete guesswork here. Um, I wonder what the other biographies of Shakespeare have to say about it. And that makes me wonder if some of the harder to get the mouth around uh, sections are the result of parts that were worked over too much. Who knows? Um, but this is what happens, I suppose, when you're not used to memorizing poetry and suddenly you need to do it and you want to do it and it takes an awful lot of time and you just become extremely familiar with all the turns and flows and uh, all the all the music of these words. Um, yeah, just the, 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 just the last two lines. Um, and enterprises of great pitch and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Did he write it that way? With this regard, their currents turn awry because the, the phrase currents turn awry actually sounds sort of like a, a blockage in water, like a dam that is turning the water away. Um, did that sound natural in 1600? With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Um, or did that sound strange? And if it did sound strange, why did you do it that way? Um, it is wonderful to even guess on how you might 
spend some time in Shakespeare's head, but I hope that over this last hour I have been able to do it in at least uh, uh, an enjoyable way. So have a good night, everyone out there. To bear or not to bear, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sad troubles and by opposing, end them. To die, to slay, no more. And by a slave to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation to devoutly to be washed. To die, to slip, to slip perchance to dream, aye, there's the rope. For in that slip of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity a so long life, for who would bear the whips and scorn to tie? The oppressor's wrong, the poor man's contumely, the pangs of disprised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his coatus make with a bare bodkin. Who would these fathers bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life? But that the threat of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience doth make cords of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment with this regard. Their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.